This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It's Thursday, April 21st, 2022. I am Guy Benson. This is The Guy Benson Show. Welcome, one and all. Come on in. We always appreciate your listenership every single weekday, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time or around the clock, on demand for free on our podcast. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. All the ways to listen live right there. Also through our great affiliates all across the country. And then the podcast info is also there as well. GuyBensonShow.com or on that front, FoxNewsPodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm in New York for this whole week. I did the show on Monday in D.C., but every other day has been here in the Big Apple at the worldwide headquarters of Fox News Channel. I am filling in for my friend Kennedy again tonight. Last night went well. If you tuned in, thank you for doing that. Back on the big screen, I guess, or the little screen, whatever it is. Small screen? What do they call TV? Because it's like the the silver screen is movies. It doesn't matter. Television. Tonight, 7 p.m. Eastern, Fox Business Network. Looking forward to that. Good lineup ahead. And a really good lineup here on the radio side as well. Joey Jones in studio later this hour. We'll talk to him about a little on Ukraine, a little on Afghanistan, and a few other issues. Charles C.W. Cook of National Review, a Floridian who's generally a pretty big supporter of Governor DeSantis. He has taken issue with what is happening in the Florida legislature at the behest of the governor vis-a-vis Disney. We will have that discussion, that debate. What is the appropriate use of government power here? What should be done, if anything, to combat what Disney has decided to do wading into cultural politics? We will ask Charles Cook for his position on that. He's written, I think, a thoughtful piece on it. We will also check in with General Jack Keane on the very latest in Ukraine. What should we all be expecting now that this potentially final chapter of the war is beginning? What could be the denouement of that fight? We'll get the analysis of General Keane, and he really follows All of this stuff on a granular level every single day. So I look forward to that conversation, as I always do with him. And then Larry Kudlow here in studio. He's got his FBN show in the next hour. Then he'll be here sitting across from me. We'll talk about the Biden administration, economic policies, recession, his concerns there, and more. So that is what we've got on tap for you here today on the radio. I want to begin with this. So... President Biden announced $800 million in new aid to the Ukrainian military. This is on top of the previous announcement of $800 million. I'm in favor of it. Seems like we are tailoring 
more specifically our transfers of equipment to what the Ukrainians specifically need, which seems like a smart evolution here. I'm glad that the president came out and made this announcement. In fact, I was on America's Newsroom this morning on the news channel, and I was giving my thoughts on actually the Florida situation that we'll be talking about here next hour. And we were getting very close to the top of the hour, and then we got the two-minute warning on the president, and they alerted into that, and Biden spoke. So I stood there in studio, and I listened to some of what he had to say. And thumbs up on the military aid to Ukraine. Happy that that was announced. Then he was asked some questions. And it's sort of hard to hear the question, but one of the reporters asked him about this Title 42 decision that we've been covering very heavily on this show for many weeks. And the closer we get to May 23rd, that cutoff, the more questions he's getting because the policy ramifications are going to be truly disastrous at the border. So disastrous that even Democrats are again pretending to care about illegal immigration and are effectively at this point begging him to reconsider and maybe push that off until, oh, I don't know, mid-November, let's say, just to pick a totally random time on the calendar. They are worried about their own political hides, and they see an already toxic environment for their party, the Democratic Party, the party that's in power, and then they imagine a border crisis back in the headlines in a very bad way, and that does not seem optimal to them. So there's been this lobbying effort to get him to delay or rescind whatever this plan is on getting rid of one of the only tools left that they're using to even partially stem the tide because this tide has not been stemmed. Let's be clear. The tide is rushing in. But it will be far worse based on all the expert predictions if Title 42 goes away. So this reporter today with Biden asks him about Title 42 and his answer is absolutely puzzling. It is confounding. It makes no sense whatsoever until you realize, aha, I know what he did. Listen first to the answer and see if you can figure out what happened here in Cut 15. On Title 42, sir, are you considering delaying lifting Title 42? No, what I'm considering is continuing to hear from my uh, my uh, well, first of all, there's going to be an appeal by the Justice Department, because as a matter of principle, we want to be able to be in a position where if, in fact, it is strongly concluded by the scientists that we need Title 42, that we'd be able to do that. But there has been no decision on extending Title 42. OK, so some people picked up on that last part of the answer. There's been no decision on extending Title 42, which is kind of leaving that open because there were reports earlier this week that they were thinking about extending it. Saki kind of denied it yesterday at the White House, but not really. She used some of those wiggle words talking about, well, right now we are still planning on maintaining the deadline or the drop-dead date for this policy, May the 23rd. So there's Biden saying, well, you know, there's... No decision on the extension, but it was the DOJ part that was very weird. What exactly are they appealing? That sounds like maybe he's talking about, oh, that's what he's doing. He confused 
Title 42 and the immigration issue with the masking on airplanes decision that is now being appealed by the DOJ. So it was very confusing at first. Then I realized, oh, he just got these two things and they got mashed up in his brain. And he answered a question about the immigration issue as if the question had been about the masking decision by the federal judge in Florida. And look, I believe that the medical term for this is a brain fart. That's what this was. The problem is, it seems like there's kind of a lot of that going on with the president. So two hours later, the White House put out a statement under Joe Biden's name, clarifying what he really meant, which was indeed confirming the suspicions that I had after I thought about it for about five seconds, trying to decode that jumble of words. Quote, I want to clarify, in comments at the conclusion of my remarks this morning, I was referring to the CDC's mask mandate, and there is no Department of Justice action on Title 42. End quote. That's the statement from Biden. So the input came in from the reporter, question about immigration. It got into the Biden brain. He had, I guess, top of mind the mask stuff got confused about what the question was actually asking about, and then gave still a confusing answer, but on the wrong issue. And by the way, just to to point this out, the clarifying statement actually doesn't provide much clarity at all. It confirms that he confused or mixed up the two issues. It does not provide clarity on the question that was asked if he is considering extending Title 42, beyond May 23rd. All he clarified was, oh, I was thinking of and referring to that other thing. There is no DOJ action on Title 42. Okay, that's what we thought. Everyone's looking at each other. What is he talking about? What is there some lawsuit or some appeal that we don't know about? No, it was just the mask thing. But this does not actually address whether or not he is indeed considering making that change under heavy pressure even from his own party. So maybe we'll need to wait another day for another opportunity to ask the president this question because Saki seems to be treading water, leaving the door open to an extension. Only the president can really answer this. But again, here's the other problem, guys. He could give an answer, and then the White House could walk it back a few hours later on substance. He could say, why, yes, I am thinking about keeping Title 42 around longer. The extension is under consideration. And within minutes or hours, the White House could, you know, send Saki out to the podium or they could put out another press release or statement saying what the president meant was, or in fact, to clarify, there is no change in our policy. This is part of the issue. You don't really know when he says something, if that is what he meant to say, or if that is an accurate reflection of the policy of his own administration. Over and over again, this happens. On big stages, even like, you know, the taking Putin out of power thing, right? These are big issues. And it's a bit of a muddle. And I am not trying to make light of this issue, and I'm not trying to sort of be snarky or disrespectful 
toward the president, but it is not confidence inspiring. Right. It is somewhat disconcerting when this type of thing happens a lot. So. That's the update there, which is to say we don't really know anything. We didn't glean any new information. We just got a statement, confusion, quasi clarification and no answer to the question. What is worth pointing out before I break here is that perhaps the mask issue was at the forefront of his mind, which is why he went that direction in his answer, because his administration had this game of hot potato, reportedly. They did not know what to do with this judge's ruling. They didn't really want to rush out there and oppose it too strongly. So the White House was like, tossing the potato over here, and then the CDC had it. They were like, well, hang on. Well, the DOJ would have to do it, and the DOJ is like, well, it depends on what the White House says. And the White House is like, well, we're going to rely on the science. So that's you, CDC. And around and around it went, like, till the music stopped. And I guess the hot potato was in the hands of Dr. Walensky when the music stopped. So they put out their statement saying, yes, we think masks should still be on and required in airplanes. So then DOJ said, okay, that's the quote-unquote science. The appeal has been filed. That all happened just after we got off the air last night and before we went on the air over on TV on Kennedy's show. So they're in this position where I feel like the administration doesn't want to lose this case, but they also don't really want to win it. Because if they win and the masks come back on, that poll that we talked about yesterday notwithstanding – This is already a huge gift to the Republicans. If people are once again forced to put masks back on their faces because of the legal action of the Biden administration, it's just even easier to make the point. If you want a normal life and you don't want bureaucrats controlling what's on your face, vote Republican for all of these reasons on all these other issues as well. But this is just like one more This does not play well, in my view, for the Democrats, which is why they don't really know what to do with it. And they've had their hand force. And here's the appeal. It's underway. (laughs) I mean, good luck. I saw someone tweet. You guys go for this like they're sort of plumbing the depths. Maybe 33 percent isn't low enough. What new things can we dream up to make the president less popular? And divide our own party even more and depress our base while firing up the other side. They're like inventing new ways of doing it. And the tweet that I saw, someone said, you can do all of it. You can keep doing this stuff. You can cheer him or whatever. Just don't be surprised in November. Don't act shocked when November comes and the results play out. Although a lot of these people will still be shocked and angry. And, of course, they'll reach the conclusion that this must be a resurgence of white supremacy or whatever, right? Like they'll never actually learn lessons, apparently. Learning lessons seems to not be a thing that we do in this country anymore, certainly in our politics. Speaking of which, there's a soundbite I want to play for you when we come back. The press secretary at the White House was on, well, a show on CNN Plus, RIP. She was talking about the Florida law on K-3 through instruction and all of that. And I want to play it and react. That's as soon as we come back. That clip from Jen Psaki on The Guy Benson Show. Stay tuned. The Guy Benson Show. More next. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. 
From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. I'm Guy Benson. Welcome back. So our former colleague here at Fox, Chris Wallace, has a show or I guess had a show at CNN Plus, more on that later, where he does long-form interviews or did long-form interviews. And his guest recently was Jen Psaki, the White House press secretary, and they had an exchange about the law in Florida, the parental rights law, LGBT, all of that. Here is the question from Wallace and then her answer. I want to point a few things out about that answer. This is just her response. So Wallace says, look, the K through three stuff doesn't seem that unreasonable as a parent. That doesn't seem like a very unreasonable thing. Why would you object? Here's Saki's answer. Cut 20. The law is not about teaching sex education. It's about teaching about gender identity. And so what what do you do if a parent or a kid, should I say a kid in one of these elementary schools says, what about Sally? Sally has two moms or I'm not sure if I'm a girl or a boy. I mean, these are kids who are experiencing, um, you know, these moments in their lives. I also think that these are not there is not a big record of there being either sex education or extensive gender identity education in these schools. And this is creating a problem or a political cudgel about an issue that I don't think exists. All right. So she sort of scores a hat trick here in the denialist playbook. Number one, she mischaracterizes the law. If you have criticisms of the law, and I have some, at least have the decency and the rigor to get it correct. Don't misrepresent it. She's like, oh, well, what if a kid brings up another student's two mommies or whatever in class. That's not addressed in this law. What's addressed in this law is classroom instruction, the curricula, what is taught to students, not any of these issues ever coming up in conversation, especially if it's raised by a kid. That's not in the law. That's the hypothetical that she gives as if it's refuting the law or critical of the law when that is, in fact, betraying ignorance regarding what's actually in the law. Number two, she then sort of suggests that this could be an important conversation to have. Am I a boy or am I a girl? But then she follows up with saying, but this isn't even happening at all. This is a fake issue. This is invented. This is a problem that doesn't exist, which is shades of the CRT denialism. So I think every component of that answer is misleading or wrong or contradictory. And so that strikes me as a problem. Maybe she should follow libs of TikTok on Twitter to see that the problem exists or look at, for example, the developments in New Jersey and other school districts where it absolutely is a phenomenon. And this is a reaction to it. We'll be right back. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. 
You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. We continue here on the Guy Benson Show. It's Thursday, broadcasting from New York. Thanks for being here. GuyBensonShow.com for the free podcast. Every single day, should you miss a moment of the show, joining me now here in studio is our friend Joey Jones, retired Marine, Fox News contributor, host of Fox Nation Outdoors on Fox Nation, and also of the Fox podcast, Proud American, foxnewspodcast.com, busy guy. Joining us up here from Georgia, great to see you. <laughs> yeah, I'm a 24 to 48-hour guy. I'll come to New York, but it's 24 to 48 hours, and then i got to get back down south. That's like my rule in Vegas, like 48 that's, hours, that's and then that, you need to get out. <laughs> that's where that rule came from when I lived in Southern California. <laughs> so I can go for the weekend, but any more than Sunday, i got to get back. So we bumped into each other in the green room for TV this morning. You were on America's Newsroom, then I yeah. was on later. In between was a BLM leader who was, like, dropping racial epithets and slurs on the air it's like whoa so that was a moment but we were chatting a little bit in the green room and then i said well we're going to see a lot of each other today because you're coming on the radio side and then you're joining me on kennedy tonight on fox business so i'm like this is going to be a very joey heavy day here in the benson (laughs) schedule then i had literally like a 40 minute window this morning to race back to the hotel change go to the gym and like get a a peloton sweat on (laughs) and i'm arriving at the gym and guess who's there? So we've seen each other. This is like your, this is another costume change. This is the third outfit I've seen you in today. And they'll and I'll have to change clothes again. <laughs> Number four tonight <laughs> on television. Did you get a good pump in? Today? I did. You know, the, and you know that gym is like it's got all the bare essentials, but it has everything you need. So yeah. I actually stay a little bit further, a block extra away, just to use the gym. And uh, and so that's my home away from home gym there. Yep. Same. And they've got my little machine. So I tried to just like be unobtrusive over in the corner. It is. It's a nice Sweat for 20 minutes and then, and then run <laughs> off. Uh, so a couple things that I want to ask you about here. Dana Perino, our colleague, and we were both on her show today, she has co-authored a piece at foxnews.com just again reminding us, and we covered this issue last week on the show, Afghanistan. This is still a disaster for a lot of people who were stuck there, people that we promised that we would get out, people who helped us. Thousands of them are still stuck there, and you'll get a few little examples here or there or like a reminder, oh, right, Afghanistan still exists, but they're sort of few and far between in these news cycles. I'm glad that Dana wrote the piece, and I just wonder if you have some reflections because that one, I mean, it feels like ancient history. It, it really wasn't. It was less than a year ago that this all went down. No, it was just last summer, and you know, a couple a couple of thoughts there. First of all, we're kind of the ones that get accused first of moving on, right? Because the news cycle kind of in its name says the news, which is what we do as as people that talk about and report what's happening. But it's always top of mind for us. And and I think when you watch news and watch Fox News and someone like Dana that's uh, had such a great career and still has a, a huge career in front of her, um, they bring up the past experiences. So as we talk about Ukraine – you bring up Afghanistan. Hey, listen, we were just in this position six months ago. And so it is always top of mind for us, but it's not always the the front of the news cycle. And so for Dana to go back and write about this, it really just shows you where people's minds are that have to report on this every single day. Like, you don't just leave the studio and that stuff stays there. You take it home with you. I mean, for Dana to write on this, it's because it had an effect on her. Certainly it had one on me to watch it happen, having served there. So, you know, just as kind of off the cuff there, kind of off topic a little bit, I want to remind people that, that those of us that work in this business, it's not that we just talk about stuff. We care about it. And we carry it. And I know Dana does too because I've talked to her yesterday before I went on the five about it. 
But in that piece specifically, what was really amazing about how how they covered on Newsroom covered that the Afghan withdrawal, they actually, and I'm failing to remember the name of the organization or the person, but they worked with one of Dana's friends who is intimately involved with an organization to get some people out of mm-hmm. Afghanistan. And there were moments they interviewed people in Afghanistan that that by all the checks in the box met the requirements to come here and were essentially left behind. And, and they had them on Fox News in real time as they were running from persecution and trying to get here. It's very compelling, very emotional, and uh, and very real, very truthful. And that's what happened in Afghanistan less than a year ago. You fast forward to now, we have what's going on in Ukraine, and you have some similar stories. But these aren't people trying to leave Ukraine. These are people trying to fight to keep it. And um, And you look and you say, okay, well, what are our political leaders getting wrong here? Why is it that the way we have to report on it is in such a tragic way? Why does it feel like we're losing? Why does it feel like when we left Afghanistan, we were literally in retreat? And why does it feel like with what our government has deemed to be an ally, whether everyone sees it that way or not, whether they're a member of NATO or not, uh, we have what our government has worked to create an ally out of getting invaded and, and potentially taken over. Yeah, and the Ukrainians are putting up a hell of a fight, and my hat is off to them, and it's inspirational to me to watch them fighting for their country against this invading force that they were widely expected to just crumble in the face (laughs) of the Russians. That has not happened. The Russians have just been super incompetent so far. I'm very pro-Ukraine. I'm very much, you know, send them what they need. I do have this concern that I try not to think about too much because my brain starts to stir when I do. Send them what they need. Give them the weapons that they need. They would lose otherwise. They do need that help. They are willing to fight. They are eager to fight. Great. There is just a massive amount of firepower rolling into this country that is war-torn. We've seen (laughs) equipment go missing or abandoned in Afghanistan, for example. What is going to happen to some of this equipment down the line? Where Where do these munitions go if... Ukraine were in my backyard. That's something I might be a little concerned about if I well, were a Well, a major European. concern after I believe it was um, Kirby's last press conference at the Pentagon, which was only yesterday or the day before, he kind of kept alluding to this fact that um, they're sending a little bit at the time because they're having trouble tracking where it all goes. And he kind of made that off-the-cuff comment of, you know, well, we can't – you know, we don't know that we can send 10,000 more rounds because we don't know if they can get it to where it needs to be. Right. And Which then, makes sense that there'd be some it, confusion. It makes sense that it would be a concern. It doesn't make sense that our government can't track where these munitions are going. Uh, the lines of communication are there. It's incompetence, and really what it is, it's a lack of individuals in the right places, which tells me it's a lack of preparation. The, to think for a moment that Joe Biden went into office and didn't see this coming, that's tough. And maybe some of that responsibility goes with the last administration too. I don't know. You have a changeover of intelligence. Most of the intelligence community has sang this song for more than a year. They have said definitively, this will happen. It isn't a threat. It will happen. And so how, how does an administration six months ago, did they decide then that this is how they would handle it? I hope not. Well, and they had that buildup of troops along the border for that's months. What and that's what I'm talking right, about. No, totally. Yeah. So, so my thought is, and this has been one of the critiques that I think makes the most sense in terms of this administration and this president, the time to have 
armed these people in a way that would be not chaotic and much more precise, where you can actually track stuff yeah. and would be before you have Russians in the country, before the invasion happens, as opposed yeah. to on the fly mid-invasion. And, and that's what's so – and let me be very specific here. I've, one thing I didn't really finish that thought to really give people an understanding of where my criticism is coming from mm-hmm. – I have friends that are veterans, special operations veterans, that are in Poland helping with human intelligence in Ukraine right now. Incredibly effective working with the Ukrainian government. Our government wants nothing to do with what they're doing. Doesn't play nice, isn't trying to coordinate or anything. Why? Exactly. That is the question. I I don't have an answer for you. I don't have an explanation. I don't know if it's liability. Honestly, I don't understand. These are the same veterans that were in Afghanistan six months ago getting people out every, every literally every border of Afghanistan uh, that were trying to get out. A lot of them were uh, connected to high net wealth individuals. They were basically operating as mercenaries, going in as strike teams, pulling people out. They had a name and address. They went and got them and took them out, tried to work with the State Department. Their comments to me when they came back from Afghanistan, these same veterans that are in Poland right now helping, was we've been places where we knew the government wouldn't help us. This is the first time we've been somewhere where we thought the government was working against us, the government being the United States. The U.S. government. Yes. In both cases, in Afghanistan. Uh, That was their comment on Afghanistan. Now they're working in Poland, being very effective in helping with human intelligence. Does it feel the same way? And they they just – they don't have any communication with the State Department, with the the Department of Defense. They don't feel like they have an opportunity to to help Mm -hmm. our government do what it's trying to do, which is to disseminate weapons across Ukraine. That's the the incompetence that – from my perspective, looks incompetent. Maybe it's strategic. Maybe there's a reason that I don't know. I'm not trying to armchair quarterback our government in the middle of a conflict. But if I look back six months ago, because I see China and there were people on calling the for it at the time, right? It's not like oh, no one thought of this. People yeah. thought of it and were calling for it, and it didn't happen. It, and listen, I don't want to be at war. I don't want our government to put us at war. I'm not going to champion. Hey, listen, send ten thousand troops to Ukraine so Russia doesn't invade. I know it's difficult decisions. I know there's probably situations that there is no right answer because at the end of the day, the aggressor, Putin, is going to do what the aggressor wants to do. But I have to ask my government to be responsible and I have to ask them to be better the next time than they were the last time. And China puts out the message, hey, don't don't get involved with Taiwan. Well, guess what that means? That means we're about to be involved with, with a conflict that involves Taiwan. You know, that's That's how I interpret that. What did this government learn from this situation? They can apply to that and not make the same mistakes. Joey Jones, our guest here in studio. I want to shift to domestic politics. As I mentioned, you're up here from Georgia. You're a Georgia <laughs> voter. There's a primary election coming up in a few weeks in your state. And it's gotten, it's gotten a fair amount of attention because, number one, it's like a ground zero state in terms of American it politics is. for the last few cycles now. Yeah. A couple huge races coming up in the Senate side. Of course, the governor's race. And on the Republican side of things, in the gubernatorial contest, there's this challenge to the sitting incumbent, Brian Kemp, who's the governor. Former Senator David Perdue is Trump's guy. Trump has issues with Kemp going back to 2020 and and all of that stuff. Without getting too far into the weeds, on the ground, how does that race feel to you? I know the polling is looking pretty good for Kemp. Uh, you occasionally weigh in on this on Twitter, and then you get sort of a blizzard of people who either agree with you and like Kemp or disagree with you, and you're like, you know, you're you're shilling against, you know, against Trump's guy or whatever. Crowding out that noise, 
How do you feel this is playing out based on what you're seeing and hearing? I think Brian Kemp is going to earn the nomination, and it's going to come down to which the Democrats or the Republicans put the most work into winning the go- the, go- the governorship, uh, if that's a word. I hope it is. Governorship? Yeah. Governorship's adding right. the letter B to something talking about governor is always difficult for me, <laughs> and I don't have a huge command of the English language <laughs> to begin with. So um, to give you an idea of kind of what the different aspects are, Brian Kemp is a candidate and a governor. It seems to be searching for an identity. He really was a Trump guy until he wasn't, and that wasn't his choice. Brian Kemp actually put out commercials that kind of was his version of Trump. You know, the funny, the big one everyone remembers is I've even got a pickup so I can haul off the illegals. And the second one was where he does a commercial in a room full of guns, trying to be audacious, trying to be a common man and speak the common vernacular in an almost funny but satirical way. And a lot of people made fun of him for it and end up winning, becoming governor. As governor, he's much more moderate, I think, than than a lot of people understand. Like some of the things he's done, like signing in constitutional carry last week, a lot of it is almost always reactionary. He's hesitant, he's hesitant, and then he realized that the, that the momentum's there and, and that he's going to make enemies in the legislature, so he does it. I don't mind that. I don't mind that in governance. I don't mind moving slow, being hesitant, making sure you know where the populace is. I think for him it's a little bit more self-preserving than anything. The biggest example I can give you is without naming names, I spoke to people very close to the situation, and I think that he I think he appointed Kelly Loeffler instead of Doug Collins based on demographics and the future governor elections rather than who was going to serve Georgia or have a better chance. In that holding. open Senate seat. Yes. I apologize. But yeah. and, and so in 2018. And, uh, and so with, when you look at things like that, you know – is Brian Kemp the best we can do? Probably not. But then you flip over and you look at David Perdue. And how can you award a legacy name, one of the founding members of the good old boys club that has lost elections in Georgia recently, how can you reward someone whose failure to campaign or connect to Georgians meant that we gave up a Senate seat that was solidly red to probably the single most unqualified sitting senator today in the United States Senate? And if you can show me someone more unqualified than John Ossoff, not based on partisanship, but just on life experience and resume, then we'll, you know I'll accept defeat. But I don't think you're going to find them. I mean, this this is not someone who's ever been a leader, who's ever been in charge of policy, who's ever done anything other than lose to Karen Handel, who might be the worst candidate in the state of Georgia in the last ten years. That's John Ossoff's resume. He won that seat because of David Perdue's inaction, not because of his actions. And that I cannot reward someone who got so comfortable being the last name Perdue sitting in the Senate for the state of Georgia that he chose not to campaign and lost the seat. I don't know how you reward that person, even if Trump likes him. With, a, with the governor's mansion. Well, and there's a lot of Trump drama tied into all of this. The whole reason that there's a primary challenge exactly. at all is because Trump is mad, and so it's exactly. like a vendetta. And that's your opinion on the primary. I'm not getting involved in the primary. I think Kemp's been a pretty good governor overall. I hear your point. My concern is let's say Kemp prevails in the primary, and the voters will decide that in a number of weeks. Uh, I think May, sometime mid-May, late May. Once that decision is made, let's say Kemp wins the primary – then you've got Stacey Abrams on the other side. I am not an admirer of Stacey Abrams. Uh, she, I guess, fancies herself to be the incumbent, uh, even though she lost last time and lied about it and was rewarded for all those <laughs> lies. I would very much like to see her lose again to whoever the Republican nominee is going to be. If it's not Trump's guy, might we see a replay of 2020, 2021 I don't think again? So. I don't think so. It, there's a, 
I think voters one were much further away from from the election in in 2020 than than we what, were then. Yeah, two months later, I think January uh, January sixth actually is when the runoff was. So we're much further away, and things aren't as important to you when you're two or three years away from it. And number two, it's not a hard calculation. I don't think that voters connect their senator the same way they do their governor in the state of Georgia. I understand the hesitancy in the runoff. 70,000 Republican voters stayed home just in northwest Georgia, essentially Marjorie Taylor Greene's district and connecting districts alone from the November election to the January election yeah, when we that's lost. That's the loss right there. Exactly. I don't think 70,000 voters are staying home. I think we're going to have a really big voter turnout on both sides. But I think Brian Kemp wins. I don't know that David Perdue does, but I think Brian Kemp does. Number one, even without the Trump endorsement or even Trump liking him, he's much more favorable to the common person than David Perdue or Stacey Abrams. Well, and also look at the environment in the country right now. That's what I'm, I, the I big issue. I think Stacey Abrams could win is my concern. Absolutely she could. And so it's like all hands on deck. I just want to make sure that that exactly. doesn't happen. Exactly. Uh, that's going to be our focus here. Joey Jones, great to see you again, and I'll see you again tonight on TV. Thanks for having me on. And good luck on the fight. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. We'll take a quick break and be right back on The Guy Benson Show. Fresh conservative talk, Guy Benson Show. It's The Guy Benson Show in New York City. So I referenced this earlier in the hour. But it was announced today that the parent company over at CNN is just axing CNN Plus. Pulling the plug, it's going to be gone. They hyped this thing and built this thing up for months. The budget was hundreds of millions of dollars, millions worth of promotion. I mean, they were advertising for this thing for weeks. And it's just been a gigantic flop. I'm not going to be gleeful about it because there are some good people losing jobs, like not famous people that you know, just people working behind the scenes who are now out of a job very quickly. I'm just shocked by the speed of this implosion. Whoa. Was it 27 days and gone? CNN Plus, no more. From the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Kai Benson Show. A new hour of the Guy Benson Show now underway. Thank you for tuning in every weekday, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Also around the clock on demand for free on our podcast, GuyBensonShow.com. That's our website. All of your resources for the show right there. GuyBensonShow.com. Still to come today, General Jack Keane later on this hour, giving us the latest out of Ukraine. And also Larry Kudlow will be here on The Economy next hour. Fox News alert as we get going. Speaking of the economy, the Dow down 608 points. Make that 368 points today, closing at 34,792. So a couple days in the green for the Dow, not today, sinking almost 400 points. Joining us now is Charles C.W. Cook, senior writer at National Review. Charles, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me. 
I quoted your piece from yesterday on TV last night when I was filling in for Kennedy. I'm doing the same thing tonight, by the way, FBN, 7 p.m. Eastern time. And your piece that I cited and put a little screen grab up on the screen from is in regard to a decision that Republicans in Florida have made to really go after Disney over Disney's political activities surrounding this parental rights LGBT law. And we've covered that extensively here on the show. The audience knows my position on it. We don't have to rehash all of it. You've written a piece basically saying that the Republicans won the fight. Disney intervened. It didn't work. The law passed. It has been implemented. It's actually rather popular if you look at polling in Florida and beyond. So this was a fairly clean win for the Republicans and a loss for Disney. And here you have the Republicans trying to sort of press their advantage further and seemingly punish Disney for having crossed them, for having waded into this in the first place. You argue that that is bad and the wrong thing to do. Lay out the reasons from your perspective why, if you would. Well, as she said, the Republicans won this fight. They got their law. It was passed through the legislature. It was signed by Governor DeSantis. And Governor DeSantis uh, can be regarded as a fighter in the parlance of the American right, because he didn't just sign it. He told Disney to shove off. He said he wouldn't be cowed by Disney. I don't understand why, having won uh, conclusively, the Republican Party of Florida feels the need to retaliate further against Disney. First off, I think it's inappropriate for government officials uh, to take actions against corporations based on the viewpoints of those corporations, much as I dislike Disney's view of this. Second, I think the specific actions that Disney has taken, which I'm sure we'll come to, um, uh, sorry, that, that, that Florida has taken, will make public policy worse in the state. Um, so in, in my view, this was a, an, an un, unnecessary uh, and unacceptable escalation of a fight that Florida had already won. And one thing that I would just point out here, and we've talked about this, but for folks who may have missed that interview or those episodes Our guest here, Charles Cook, lives in Florida. He's written quite a few pieces defending Ron DeSantis against a whole series of attacks, just a barrage from the left. Overall, and you can correct me if I'm mischaracterizing it all, overall, you have been a pretty solid advocate for the governance that Ron DeSantis has engaged in in Florida. Not 100 percent. You're not, you know, a sycophant, but you're you've been pretty supportive overall. You think he's done, by and large, an excellent job, I think was your word. In Florida, And I tend to agree you are not in agreement on this point for some of the reasons that you just laid out. When I put your quote from your piece to my colleague and my friend Katie Pavlich on TV last night, she made a point that I think is fair. She said, well, should there be carve outs only for Disney in this state in the first place? Is this a distortion of the market? Is this a good sound policy anyway? Whereas, you know, other theme parks, other companies have to play by different rules. Uh, This is just leveling the playing field. I think that's fair. I I think what concerns me, though, is the timing of this leveling of the playing field, which seems inarguably linked 
to a political disagreement, and this is like a, a punitive retaliatory action, even if you can defend it just sort of in isolation on the merits, I'm not sure that you can extract the context or, you know, sap the context in which the changes have been made, which, again, doesn't really seem very subtle to me. That's part of the problem here, yes? Yeah. I mean, if this were a carve-out and if this had been rescinded as part of an overall and facially neutral review of carve-outs, then I would have no problem with it whatsoever. There is, for example, a carve-out within Florida law um, for Disney uh, within the tech bill that the Florida legislature passed uh, late last year. Um, I would repeal that in a heartbeat. That essentially gives treatment to Disney that is not received by, say, Netflix or HBO Go um, or Hulu. But first off, this was not a facially neutral review of carve-outs. Nobody was talking about this in Florida. Nobody was talking about it in the Florida legislature or in the governor's office or in the Republican Party. Um, Nobody had really thought much about this for 50 years. This came up because Disney spoke out against uh, the bill uh, that uh, Ron DeSantis signed, which I like and support. And um, I think it's gaslighting to, to pretend otherwise. Um, I would also push back against the characterization of Disney's arrangement here um, as a carve-out as well. And I do think this matters. Um, If it were the case that the only independent special district in Florida were Walt Disney World, then, uh, yes, that might be a little unseemly. But it's not. Um, There are 1,844 special districts in Florida, and 1,288 of them are independent special districts like Disney's. And Disney's is a big one because Disney is big. Disney World is the size of San Francisco. It spans two counties, Orange County and Osceola County. It's an unusual place. But it's not just Disney that has this arrangement. Orlando International Airport has this arrangement. The Villages has this arrangement. Funnily enough, where Ron DeSantis was when he made this announcement. The Daytona International Speedway has this arrangement. Sometimes in politics... Uh, you have to solve difficult challenges. Disney World is a difficult challenge. Should locals in Orange and Osceola County pay taxes and incur debt uh, for Disney's benefit? The answer in 1967 was no. And so Disney was allowed to um, enjoy an independent special district, the Reedy Creek Improvement District, uh, that gave it certain um, freedoms uh, that the state didn't want to deal with, there being no infrastructure there at the time. This has worked for 50 years, and I think as a small-C conservative, uh, that should matter. Yeah, I I think that the the policy success here should matter, and then the what could happen next should also matter, which is all of a sudden are these costs going to be shoved off onto taxpayers? And when you have taxpayers now footing the bill for stuff in Florida, is that in their best interest? Is that in the best interest of the state? For all of these reasons, you and I are – agreeing on this. This was a targeted strike specifically at Disney, retaliation for a political disagreement. I don't think that this is a great use of governmental power, whether it's you know illegal or unconstitutional. I don't know. I don't think that it's something that I support. That That's where I definitely come down. However, Charles, there are counterpoints on this, and I don't think that they should just be dismissed because a lot of conservatives and Republicans would be listening to this conversation saying, okay, maybe in theory you guys have a point, and maybe I'm not in love with this idea. Some people are in love with it. It's just like, you know, nuke them from orbit. 
They decide that they're going to play these games. I think Ben Shapiro had a tweet today. You want to do this. You want to come after the pro-growth, pro-business, for the most part, party on behalf of woke people and socialists. F around and find out is what Ben tweeted. And that's what Disney has done. And now they're finding out. And it's very unpleasant for them. And there are some people on the right who are just going to cheer because people that they're annoyed with are getting punished. So I'm not sure we're going to necessarily convince those folks. But there are some people who say your points are fair. Your arguments are logical. I'm not totally comfortable with this. However, we have seen the left organize extremely successfully with this whole constellation of tastemakers and institutions, government power, cultural power, you know, activist power, all this stuff. And they've been seeping in and taking over all sorts of institutions. They've captured a lot of institutions in this country. And whenever there's a cultural battle, they spring into action and they effectively bully these companies or institutions or whatever into not just being neutral, but taking the lefty line on things. And generally, these institutions have decided that they are more scared of the left than they are of the right. They have made the calculation that their bottom line might take a bigger hit by alienating lefties than righties. And there are some conservatives saying, you know, I'm not loving this. I'm not sure what a better solution might be. But this is one lever of power that Republicans have gained and conservatives have gained legitimately through elections. And if we're not going to use that lever to be a counterweight here, to remind these institutions, hey, there's tens of millions of other people on the other side here. We're not happy. You can't ignore us. And if you're going to play these games, then guess what? We're going to use our power to punch back, basically, and try to maybe bully these institutions back toward neutrality, aren't we just unilaterally disarming if we're going to be above doing something like that? I am sympathetic to that impulse and to people who ask those questions, Charles. What would your reaction be? What would your response be to that? Well, I think this is a good example of Republicans and the conservatives that undergird the party using uh, state power by passing a law that was popular uh, and refusing to back down in the face of cultural pressure. And that's what the Florida legislature did. They used their power. It passed the House, it passed the Senate, it got the governor's signature, he told Disney to go away. It's now the law in Florida. The same is true in Georgia, with last year's freak out yep. over their election changes. The Delta Airlines and Coca-Cola and all that. Yeah, and Major League Baseball. But that law stood. It passed both houses of the state legislature. Brian Kemp, the governor there, uh, stood up and said he wouldn't be cowed by corporate pressure. He signed the law. He defended the law. And actually, I think conservatives in the end came out of that fight rather well. You know, even Stacey Abrams said that she thought the boycott was a bad idea. Rob Manfred, the MLB commissioner, said he didn't want to see that happen again. And funnily enough, a lot of those games ended up in Atlanta anyway because the Braves made the World Series. Yeah, exactly. Um, but that law is still in place. Uh, so I- I'm not averse to all... Uh, government power, um, I'm suggesting that Florida used its government power. And then to add insult to injury for Disney, it turned out that the law was extremely popular. It's popular among Democrats in Florida. It's popular in the country at large. And I think at that point, if you're Ron DeSantis, you don't need to get and into take the w. this gray area. You don't need to salt the earth. You don't need to open yourself up to criticisms and potentially embroil 
the state in litigation and all sorts of endless wrangling because that's what we're going to see so uh, so I, I think your point again i'm agreeing with you but i understand that there's there's another side to it what about the argument saying that's all fair enough true but there's a broader culture war here and it is right to make an example in a very high profile way out of disney here just to send a message that this is not just you can't just show in, you know, do your drive by thing where you attack us and say that we're killing kids and all that stuff. And you can repeat this pattern. You'll lose some. You'll win some. This is basically trying to deter corporations from doing the bidding of the left and going you know, to war with Republican governments. What do you make of the deterrence argument? Well, I, I have no doubt that it will, to some extent, work. But I, I think there is a limit to what governments are allowed to do. And you refer to the broader culture war. I mean, it was the broader culture war that led many progressive jurisdictions to try to ban Chick-fil-A. It was the broader culture war that led to the city of Los Angeles to try to uh, strike off from its register um, of contractors any private companies that did business with the National Rifle Association. And conservatives could quite reasonably um, uh, see at the time that 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 was outrageous and and that we should not be using government power in that way. And I think the same is true here. Even if you think uh, that this is constitutional or that it will pass legal muster, it it could. Um, the, The expectations of Uh, private industry uh, and private institutions, be they churches or corporations, um, are different than than, than those of of governments. Yeah, and and, and um, Charles, just because we're up on a break here, I would just say you're explaining this all very eloquently, and I I tend to agree with most, if not all of it. I think from where I sit, if you get into this tit-for-tat thing where it's culture wars back and forth, it's like, okay, you're going to exert your power – And you're going to punish your enemies, so now we're going to do the same fire with fire, all of it. If I felt like this might actually steer us back toward neutrality and a de-escalation of these fights, I might be willing to put up with it and say it's worth it in this case. I'm just not convinced of that. I think it just deepens everything and makes everything worse and more polarized and more miserable, which I'm not excited about either, on top of the other points that you made. So that's sort of my perspective. But there are conservatives who disagree, many of them. I wanted to give them some fair shake and ask you a few uh, questions from another vantage point. If people want to read the piece, they can go on to National Review Online. Charles C.W. Cook, senior writer there. Charles, always enjoy having you here. Thank you very much. We appreciate it. Uh, Thanks for having me. And we'll be right back after this. It's The Guy Benson Show. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. I was critical of Governor DeSantis, still am, uh, during um, the height of COVID. Yeah. But if you really look at the numbers, Florida actually came He's out all right. He's got a story all, to tell. All he, right. he has a story yeah, to tell. And the economy is strong. And the economy is strong. I think the facts, though, are you got to look under, I mean, Back here on the, the, what he's Guy doing Benson with the math books. And I'm Guy Benson. Thanks for listening. That was something you don't hear very often. That was an MSNBC panel. Yes, MSNBC, with Simone Sanders doing most of the talking there, former Bernie Sanders supporter, then, of course, went and worked for the Biden administration. She left the vice president's office like everyone does just recently, and she signed a contract. She's over at MSNBC. But they're talking about Florida, 
and she prefaces it with the caveat she has to. Oh, I don't. Yeah, I'm critical of DeSantis. I'm still going to criticize him. And later on in the segment, she also said, "Oh, it's not all you know, rainbows and sunshines in Florida. Let's not heap too much praise on DeSantis." I don't think we have to worry about that at MSNBC. But in the middle there, that was an admission. That was a concession from Simone Sanders on MSNBC for all the caterwauling about Ron Death Santis and how terrible he was in Florida on science and the virus and everything else. She said, Florida, actually, when you look at the data, Florida came out okay health-wise, and she's right. Their outcomes are right about average, Florida's. And then a Washington Post reporter on the panel there on MSNBC chimes in, yeah, and the economy's doing really well. Yes. They can't even deny that, even on MSNBC. That's the reason Governor DeSantis has the numbers that he's got in Florida and why he's on track to a big re-election, much to their chagrin. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Halfway through today's program on the Guy Benson Show, thank you for tuning in, GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast, always free of charge, really growing. Monster March, thanks to all of you. GuyBensonShow.com. Joining us once again is General Jack Keane, a retired four-star general, chairman of the Institute for the Study of War, and Fox News senior strategic analyst. General, welcome back. Yeah, delighted to be here, Guy, with you and your audience. Let's start with Mariupol and what's happening there and the military significance of that city likely falling into Russian hands. What does that mean? How does that affect what comes next? Well, it, it is significant, and that's why they focused on it so much. And and certainly the forces that hit uh, Mariupol from the southern military district, they're the forces that have been in the region you know, since 2014, the commander who's now overall in charge of the campaign has been the commander since 2016. So when they attacked uh, Mariupol from the land and also from the sea, they put naval infantry in there uh, as well. They saw that as as very critical to their overall success in Ukraine. Certainly the number one city is obviously the capital, and they failed at that. Uh, but Mariupol being a coastal city, uh, once they take that and technically, uh, while it's not in their hands yet, uh, de facto, it truly is. And um, then they have a land bridge uh, all the way from from Russia to Crimea through Ukraine. And that is a strategic objective that they wanted to achieve back in 2014. And they were not able to because of the resistance of the Ukrainians. So it's very important to them. And they've already made a fact that uh, on 9 May, which is the celebration in Russia of the defeat of uh, Nazi Germany in World War II, that uh, they're going to celebrate the victory in Mariupol. And it's been playing as a victory every single day on state television uh, throughout Russia. I mean, they'll be celebrating in a bombed out, hollowed out shell of a city. But I guess that's the plan. That's the propaganda value that they'll have. And also the strategic value that you just mentioned, that land bridge, that sets up this big showdown in the east, the east and the south. This is the new front in the war. President Biden announcing today $800 million in additional aid to the Ukrainians, to the Ukrainian military. What are we sending them? What do the Ukrainians need right now to win? 
Yeah, so what, there's been a shift in terms of how we're handling uh, the shipment of arms and munitions. In the beginning, we were pushing things to the Ukrainians that we thought they needed. Obviously, we're talking to them as well. Uh, but now we're completely adhering to what do they need. And if we don't have X, but we have something close to X, then we're going to give them, give them Y. We've got the Secretary of Defense and the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs who are involved in this uh, every single day now for some time. And I think that, is, that has made a difference. The fact that last week uh, we shipped a pretty comprehensive list to them, and, and some of that is already there and being used, and, uh, and we come right back this week uh, with 72 more howitzers and ammunition to support it and, and uh, armed drones as well. I mean, that is significant. Now, by, it, by itself, it can't win the war, but we, it, it's a step in the right direction. We have to sustain that. And I hope we're putting significant pressure on our NATO allies to be all in here. Because what is going to happen in the Donbass region is uncertain. No one knows for sure here. What, uh, what, what is being set up, as, as best we can see, looking at it every day through the lens of the Institute for the Study of War, what we see is very comprehensive aerial and artillery bombardment on the Ukrainian defensive positions in the Donbass area. And the ground forces have made limited, small-scale advances, having some of the same problems they've had in the northern part of Ukraine when they were on the offensive uh, there. But nonetheless, the damage that is being done by the artillery and the aerial bombardments will take its toll and has the potential to grind down the Ukrainian defensive forces so that the Russians' ground forces, who are not that confident, but they could make significant breakthroughs and turn this around to the Russian favor. So that's the concern we have. Obviously, what's important here, the artillery, if you have the counter-battery radar, and we've been sending that to them, you can respond with your own artillery when you're fired upon, because as soon as the round is in the air, the radar picks it up, and you can fire in a matter of seconds at those artillery rounds that just fired at you. So that is very significant. The other thing, obviously, that's very effective against artillery is air power. But the Ukrainians have a limited amount of air power, and I doubt that their MiGs would be able to fly so close uh, to Russian ground forces without being shot down. But that is why we're sending them over 100 drones for that purpose. The, the drones are air power. And uh, these, um, I'm assuming they're armed drones. They say they're similar to the switchblade drones, you know, which could loiter and kill armored vehicles. And when you see videos uh, on television, uh, many of the videos you're seeing are actually their artillery. They look, it looks like a tank, but it's referred to as self-propelled artillery. In other words, it's on tracks. It has armor on it. It looks like a tank. It has a big tube sticking out of it. But actually, it's artillery. And that is what is being fired. And those drones uh, can take that artillery out. So, so that's going to be very effective as well. So a couple of follow-ups on everything that you just said. Number one, you said that the United States should be pressuring our NATO allies to be, quote, all in when it comes to this big, perhaps final confrontation in Donbass and elsewhere in the south and east. What does that mean, all in, from a NATO perspective? Well, what I mean is that they would send them everything that they need, and to include some of their own equipment and be willing to take some risk there. 
I mean, the German chancellor the other day, I really took exception to what he was saying. You know, he won't provide them any heavy weapons. And he said, well, we don't want to uh, give them some of the things that, that we have. Well, just think about it. I mean, if we, if we have the potential to crush the Russian army in Ukraine and actually defeat it, and that potential is there, I mean, uh, there's no certainty, but that opportunity is there. What better deterrence is there to protect the NATO countries, and particularly the eastern NATO countries, than the defeat of the Russian army mm-hmm. inside of Ukraine? And even if it meant some, accept some risk, send some of his own uh, leopard tanks, send some of his own artillery. Uh, I mean, the truth is the German military is a mere shadow of its former self that it was during the Cold War. They have let their military atrophy to a, an almost disgraceful situation. But uh, so how much of a fight they could put up is another issue anyway. And uh, that's what I'm talking about. OK, Take no, that, that makes perfect sense to me. And I guess then one more follow up and you were just touching on it there again. You explained the concern that you have about how Russia might be able to turn this thing around. But there's also a very reasonable chance that things don't improve and the Ukrainians could just outright win, potentially. What would that look like? What would be a trajectory toward victory for the Ukrainians? Like, what are the signposts? Well, that, that, that certainly, that potential is there, and that's certainly what we want. I get continuously disappointed by the administration. President Biden made a press conference today, more of an announcement, not a press conference, and and announced that we were providing aid to Ukraine, but then, you know, avoided the opportunity once again to say we're we're all in here. Our objective is to help Ukraine win, to defeat the Russian army inside of Ukraine. What what what? First of all, the Ukrainians have to stop them in the Donbass. That's number one. They have to stop this Russian advance that's taking place. Number two, they would have to make some successful counterattacks that gain momentum to drive the Russians back across the border. That is what a win uh, would look like. Is that feasible? Is that plausible? It is feasible, but it would mean uh, continuous sustainment of heavy weapons. And the degree that we're doing something like that uh, is really quite extraordinary. The the only frame of reference we really have for it is the uh, Lend-Lease program that the United States had in supporting the Brits when they were in, involved in a war against Germany before the United States was involved in that, in that war. And Churchill credits Roosevelt for saving Britain as a result of it. So, yes, but it, it, this is a real challenge. It, it, you can't understate the challenge that we have in getting equipment to people who haven't been trained on it, spend some time training it, and then get them all the ammunition that, that goes with that. Meanwhile, they're fighting a very serious battle themselves, and also recognize that Ukraine's supply lines are now significantly extended because the supply line from the equipment coming in mm-hmm. comes into Poland. You have and to come have all, to the all the way across the country. Down to the southeastern part of the country, whereas the Russian supply lines are right there. They're very short, and they're very favorable to them because Russia's there, Crimea is right there, and they can, they can provide that sustainment for them. So, yes, and the terrain here does favor the attacker, the offense, because it's open, flat terrain. But the Russians, they're not very capable. And uh, this is high-end combined arms warfare, artillery, aerial bombardment, tank attacks supported by infantry, 
uh, in mass uh, with air cover in support of all of that. That's combined arms, high-end warfare. The Russians have tremendous difficulty synchronizing what I said. So that gives that certainly helps the Ukrainians the sheer incompetence of the of the Russian. Yeah, that's been a big plus, actually, over these last two months. The incompetence of the Russians has been a boon to the Ukrainians. There's no question about that. And uh, like a pleasant surprise, I think, to many of us. Last question, General. We saw this test yesterday firing off an intercontinental ballistic missile, Satan 2. The Russians did this. And Putin said this was just some food for thought for anyone who might cross Russia. This is nuclear capable. I read that this type of missile could destroy an area the size of France. Part of this, obviously, is bravado. It's also provocative. What do you make of it? What should the U.S. response be, if anything? Well, I mean, first of all, the U.S. should have continued to test our uh, strategic nuclear capability as opposed to uh, delaying or canceling two tests. That That is makes no sense whatsoever. We, we're doing the testing to maintain our deterrent capability. Let's, yes, Russia has been improving their nuclear arsenal for over 10 years, and uh, this is a manifestation of it. I think there's some bluster associated with it because, as you indicated, uh, bravado, Putin has a tendency to exaggerate the, the capabilities of his weapon systems. But what we have a deterrence against his strategic nuclear capability, which is ICBMs, intercontinental ballistic missiles, submarine launch missiles, and bombers. We just, and our deterrence is more than adequate. So there's no additional danger or threat here from them, but we need to upgrade ours, and there's money in the budget to do it. We have to sustain it uh, to complete that upgrade because we've been letting it uh, atrophy. General Jack Keane, a retired four-star general. He is chairman of the Institute for the Study of War, and they are following everything happening on the ground in Ukraine very closely, which is why the day-to-day analysis, even hour-to-hour analysis from General Keane is so valuable. He is Fox News senior strategic analyst here, and we always appreciate your time, General. Thank you. Yeah, great talking to you, Guy, and as always, your audience. Absolutely. We will take a quick break. We'll be right back. The Guy Benson Show continues after this. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Back here on The Guy Benson Show. Really appreciate you tuning in. We've got Larry Kudlow coming up, talking the economy. Recession watch with Larry. That's in our final hour, the happy hour straight ahead. First, I want to play this. This is a real roller coaster ride of a question. This was technically a question being asked on MSNBC by a woman called Nicole Wallace, who's one of their anchors. I'm sort of confused. She's supposed to be a news anchor, I think, but she's very left-wing. She's a Republican strategist turned liberal. And maybe we will revisit that history in just a moment. But on her show on MSNBC yesterday... She was talking, it seemed like at first, about Republican governors and some of her objections to what they're doing. And then the comparison that she makes is just wild. And the whole thing takes a very dark turn. This is brainworms stuff on MSNBC. Nicole Wallace yesterday. Cut 21. I worry that in covering 
Glenn Youngkin and his politics of parental choice, all the focus was on how well it worked. And even in our conversations about DeSantis, it's about how well they're serving him. The, the, the truth is dehumanization as a tactic for politics is from war. Dehumanization is a it's a it's a tactic. It's being used right now. The Russians get their soldiers to rape children by dehumanizing them. Ooh. Dehumanization as a practice is a tactic of war. It's being deployed in our politics, and people like you and I sometimes lose the plot and, and admire its effectiveness. It's not its substance, but even the analysis of these tactics loses sight of what, of what this speech brings us back to, which is that dehumanization has a cost right now right now as it's being deployed there are children and 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 Buttigieg made this point when don't ask don't tell was introduced kids will die okay let's unpack this one i think the most correct thing that she said there was quote i sometimes lose the plot because she has really lost the plot that was a rambling deranged question where it began with Glenn Youngkin and parental rights and very quickly in the span of a sentence or two devolved into Russian soldiers raping children. I mean, it was a bumpy journey. Sort of some whiplash. I was expecting typical MSNBC denunciation of parental rights and Republican governors fine. Then all of a sudden we're, we're talking about child rape in the Russian military. It's like, whoa. And I guess the connective tissue that she's trying to introduce into this is the war tactic of dehumanization, dehumanizing the Ukrainians where you can then just murder them and commit war crimes and rape their children or something. It's kind of like, in her mind, Glenn Youngkin campaigning in the Commonwealth of Virginia to restore more control over curricula in public schools to parents. I mean, that is Not just a jump, not just a leap. That's like trying to shoot a motorcycle over the Grand Canyon. It's just insane. That is an insane point. I don't know how her brain got from point A to point B. And it happened really quickly. And then the big wind-up, after admitting to losing the plot, she said, oh, we're just talking about how effective it is. Well, the Russians raping is effective or something. And then she said when Chastin Buttigieg was commenting on Don't Ask, Don't Tell – being introduced. That was in the 90s. I don't know what she's talking about. I think she meant don't say gay. I think that's what she was probably trying to reference, but she got it wrong. And then she said kids will die. Right. So the dehumanization is Republicans talking about parents having more rights. And she says that with no sense of irony whatsoever when she concludes this little Jeremiah with accusing Republicans of killing kids and being akin to people raping kids. Who's actually doing the dehumanization here, Nicole? Just deranged. This woman and Steve Schmidt worked for John McCain. The man had no chance in that election. With the economy melting down against a guy like Barack Obama, with the press totally in the tank, and these people working on his team, no wonder McCain lost big. Seems like Wallace is in the gig that she was born to do. That's just some midday content over on MSNBC. Whoa. Final hour of The Guy Benson Show coming up.
It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It's the happy hour on The Guy Benson Show, our final hour of three every weekday between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern. Thank you for tuning in. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. The podcast is free, on demand, every day, including weekends. Bonus Benson. GuyBensonShow.com. It is all right there. We are coming to you from New York City. I'm here for the week. In for Kennedy again tonight on Fox Business Network, 7 p.m. Eastern. Hope to see you there. And a reminder that this hour is sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, which is so good. Absolutely delicious. Expanding rapidly and more news on that front to come. TheLongDrink.com, that's their website. See where it's sold near you. Eight new states in the last few weeks. You can also order online. TheLongDrink.com, always drink responsibly. 21 plus only. Well, I'm on FBN tonight at 7. A gentleman who's on every day at 4 on that network is my guest, Larry Kudlow, host of Fox Business Network's Kudlow, as I mentioned, 4 p.m. Eastern Daily, former director of the National Economic Council under President Trump. And it is very good, as always, to see you, Larry, especially here in person. Thank you, Guy. Great to be here. You were coming in hot during the commercial break about a decision not heralded that much, not getting a ton of attention in the media, but you think it's a very big deal, this NEPA Mm -hmm. change Explain just the basics of what has happened, what the shift represents, and why you think it's a disaster. Yeah, it's really fascinating. So Joe Biden is out campaigning yesterday about the so-called infrastructure bill, which, by the way, was a lousy bill to begin with. But his um, his own air quality council, his uh, White House uh, Office of Air Quality and Environment, here's the deal. NEPA is the National Environment Policy Act. NEPA is the act that basically is the gateway to building roads, highways, bridges, tunnels, pipelines, almost anything. So what they've done is reversed all of Donald Trump's NEPA regulations, reduced red tape, shortened the time frame – and lowered some of the extremist environmental restrictions, okay? That's what Trump did. That's what Trump did. And we had the, we had the play at the National Economic Council, myself and Andrew Ullman. So you were personally Francis involved Brooke. in This was one of my babies. That. This was one of the key things I did in office for three years. So what they're doing now is they are making it so restrictive. Okay, listen to this. They're going to measure environmental impact on a, quote, cumulative basis – which means like going back to Henry Ford's automobiles in the 1920s or forward 100 years. They're going to measure indirect and direct environmental impacts. That brings back into play the endangered species, the clean air, the clean water. So this is before any project gets greenlit for building. There's going to be just a ton of new regulation stuff piled on top of these are, right this is the council that essentially uh, either offers or denies permits for these infrastructure projects so they're going to make it so difficult 
And as I say, they're going to measure it cumulatively. There's something called the social uh, cost of carbon, which is an incredibly phony uh, calculation of environmental impact, emissions impact. By the way, they try to measure upstream, downstream, upstream to people that produce stuff, downstream to the consumers who use stuff. This covers, again, bridges, highways, tunnels. It covers And there's pipelines. a Wall Street Journal editorial on this today. There's a big editorial people about want it. more information. We talked about it last evening on the show. Uh, my riff actually is still posted on Fox Business uh, as well as elsewhere. It will essentially stop construction. It should, now we call it the No New Construction Act. So it's, That's the deal. It took the changes that you all made, broomed them all away, and made everything more onerous to build anything because of environmental concerns – and you sort of hinted at this. One of the only things that they've done in this administration right. is pass a bipartisan infrastructure bill. And it sounds like this new shift in regulatory decisions is going to make the spending on infrastructure projects impossible, not just harder, but impossible. impossible. I mean, basically, look, in terms of renewables, this will stop renewables because – Transmission lines for renewables, like take wind turbines, uh, and they, you know, they're trying to create technology. You store the wind and then run it through transmission lines. This will stop that because of environmental impact. So what they're spending a ton of money over here on projects, some of which are needed, but then yeah. they're making it. You know, their left hand on the other side is making it almost impossible right. for what the right hand has done to actually get achieved. Through regulation. So they, they appropriated a ton of money for projects that will be slowed, delayed, or killed by this other policy that they've just done by fiat. So you like electronic ve- electric vehicles. You like electric charging stations. You're going to have to mine for the minerals, the lithium and the cobalt and the copper. This new NEPA regulation will stop the mining. So it will stop the wind turbines. You won't be able to build anything. And the permitting process, which Trump narrowed from 15 years to two years, will explode back to 10, 12 years. You won't know, and then they're going to reject it. And will open the door to massive litigation. Right. That's stuff why will, it takes so long, stuff right? Stuff will be held up in courts. There will be arguments. This Trial is California. lawyers will have a – This actually, is what California it, does. Basically, that's a good way to think about it. It's California plus. California plus. And nobody saw this coming. By the way, it abrogates the laws passed in the Congressional Infrastructure Bill. There was a law called one federal decision, okay? That meant NEPA. What's happening here is now— Wait, how can they do that by regulation? Right. With, like, the stroke of a pen, how can that overrule what Congress actually passed? Well, that's a very important question, and it's one that we'll have to go into federal courts and probably up to the Supreme. That'll be a fight. This will bring back the old Chevron decision. Who's right, the regulators or the legislators? This, this takes away— what the lawmakers passed a couple of months ago. That's sounds how sounds unconstitutional is. to me. This is a big, you know, uh, what is it, the administrative state run amok? That's that, right. that would be this. What about jobs? What's the impact on oh, jobs? It's going to be a killer. Uh, construction jobs, hard hat jobs, blue collar jobs, pipeline jobs, <laughs> energy jobs. But it isn't just that. It's Look, here's another provision. No unplanned projects will be permitted. 
So let's say you live in a red state that is expanding, all right, and you decide you need to widen highways in order to unclog the traffic. Or you decide that the bridges need additional repair. You didn't know that, but that turns out there's an accident in Minneapolis, remember, when when, uh, Biden went there. This thing says unplanned projects will be put at the bottom of the inbox of the administrator. It's right there in the print. It's an absolute abrogation of authority from Congress. See, this is a big story. Most importantly, it will stop all – look, the public agrees that repairs and improvements for roads, tunnels, and bridges is important. That's why that infrastructure bill passed. I didn't like the bill, by the way, but whatever. This stops that. This – in other words – Pete Buttigieg, who said early in the administration, I'm not a road guy. This is that. He's not a – this NEPA decision is, is not a road guy decision. I think that seems to be putting it very, very you'll, mildly. You'll take a couple million jobs out of this over time. And, of course, our energy needs will not be met. And the irony guy – I'm not just talking fossil fuel energy. I'm talking renewable energy. For example, these – Little nuclear modules that are popping up. I mean, nuclear power is the ultimate renewable. They would never pass this muster. And as I said earlier, wind turbines that transmit through utilities would never pass muster through this. It sounds, Larry, like, A, this is a big story that's getting not nearly enough attention. B, all Cudlow story. I, I'm elevating this story to national discourse, as I often no, I'm, do. I'm glad that you have. And you <laughs> came right in here and said, let's talk about NEPA. I was like, what on earth is NEPA? Let's do it. <laughs> but it seems like the way that you go about fighting this is, number one, there are going to be lawsuits, the courts, all of that. Maybe the most efficient way would be to elect a Republican president oh. in 2024 who can come right back in and say, oh, all that stuff that you've just done, gone. Here's my new plan. The, the, the Larry Kudlow plan is now back. Well, this is what Trump did. I mean, Trump said to us early in the game, we're never going to build anything. If we have to wait 15 years, I mean, Trump was a real estate guy. He He's a builder. That's... Perfectly way. He was a builder. Uh, so we worked on this again. NEPA was the key, the National Environment Policy Act. And we uh, shortcutted it. We thinned out, deregulated it, took off the red tape and brought it down to one to two year periods, one to two year periods. What's happening here is all these new environmental restrictions, which I might uh, guy. This stuff, cumulative impacts, this is unmeasurable. The social cost of Seems made up, made up is, science. It's made up science by the radical enviros. That's what this One is. One to two years is also a long period of time. Ten years sounds like almost fake, right? Like you can't plan anything for ten years and have it be a realistic so, you know, business members, decision. Members of Congress, now the cavalry is coming and the GOP is going to win the Congress in November. That's my take. But – Members of Congress should be screaming. I don't care who you are. Democratic members of Congress should be screaming because the regulators in the White House have abrogated what the lawmakers have passed. And they should call them on the carpet immediately. This regulation should be stripped. It should be abolished immediately. They should have hearings, oversight, get this woman who runs the air quality uh, office in the White House it's craziness. You you can't even wait to 2024, guy. There are important. Pro- Look, I'm I'm a fossil fuel guy. I want to drill, drill, drill. I want to produce more oil and gas. I want to export more LNG. Okay, 
That will bring prices down at gasoline at the pump. That will make China and India less onerous, okay? Substitute natural gas for coal. That will make Europe less dependent on Russia. I'm for all that stuff. But I will say this to my friends on the left who are renewable people. You're going to get hurt by this just as much as we're going to get hurt by this. Your projects will be stopped too. This is an underplayed topic. Larry, I'm glad that you brought this to our attention. Let's all sort of reflect on it. Let's marinate on what we've just learned. We'll take a break. When we come back, I want to turn to the R word, recession. Larry Kudlow's latest thoughts on what's coming down the pike on The Guy Benson Show. Stay tuned. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. We are back. It's the Guy Benson Show. Larry Kudlow with me here in studio. Larry, I saw Goldman Sachs put out a forecast. They say 35% chance of a recession in the next two years. Does that sound too low to you? 35%? Actually, it sounds about right. It might be too low. You know, we have a situation here. I mean, the economy is weak in spots and not weak in other spots. The overriding issue is the high inflation rate. Interest rates are rising significantly already. The housing market's in a lot of trouble because mortgage rates have exploded up over 5%. I think you're in a stagflation mode right now, Guy, where inflation will be higher than growth, certainly this year and into next year. When the Fed takes the punch bowl away, as they must, people think you can get a soft landing. History does not prove soft landings. And a hard landing would be a recession? A hard landing is a recession. And I think the chances of recession in 23 and 24 are growing, okay? Uh, Stephen Ratner said the same thing in the New York Times last week. I know. It it pains me, uh, but I must say he got it right one time (laughs) in a row. I mean, look, you know, Biden, uh, I want to go back. Mitt Romney wrote a very good op-ed piece in the Wall Street Journal about this. And one of the things Mitt said, Mitt's an old friend of mine, he's very good on the economy, He said Biden's got to get rid of his woke advisors in the White House. And that is a great insight. He's got all these left-wing woke advisors. So Is Biden capable of that? It seems like he— Well, he he, doesn't fire anybody. That's what I'm saying. He doesn't fire anybody. Afghanistan proved that. And he he overrules— So Jay Powell has not yet absolutely been confirmed as chairman of the Fed. And I just want to say this on the air. Jay Powell talks the talk, does not walk the walk. The Fed is going to act— way too slowly and sheepishly. And the longer they wait to deal with inflation, the worse it's going to be. So my thought was, you know who should have been put in as chairman of the Fed? A Democrat named Larry Summers, who has said for over a year that the Biden spending policies and money printing and borrowing would cause high inflation. Well, they were telling and he him to got pipe it right. down. He, he got saying, it right. Oh, right. no, he's wrong. They're pipe trying down. to muzzle him. But that's the kind of guy. Uh, Jason Furman, Obama's CA chair. I've known Jason for many years. Again, we don't always agree. But on this point, inflation, which is the number one problem in the economy, Jason was absolutely right. They should bring a Jason Furman back in. They should bring a Larry Summers back in. They probably should bring an Austin Goolsby back in, although Austin has been too darn political for my taste. But nonetheless, there's no balance in this White House. They have far left woke climate extremist type people. And when so Mitt Romney said farther left than the Obama. Oh, right. way farther left than the Obama. They took, Which is not how Biden ran. You know what's so interesting about it? Let's say Obama and energy, Obama and fossil fuels, Obama and natural gas. Obama talked the talk of the renewable crowd but did not walk the walk. 
I mean, we had an explosion of fracking under Obama. So when he'd go to a fundraiser, he would talk about how important renewables are. But he never took the kind of actions that the Obama crowd is taking. The Biden that crowd. Would shut it, that the Biden crowd is taking that would shut it down. So it's very interesting. And you've got these crazy people. And Mitt Romney is right. Get rid of the woke advisors. And that's why when you mentioned Steve Ratner, you know, there's a group of moderate Democratic economists. OK, again, we don't always agree. But they're on target with respect to inflation. Inflation is the greatest problem facing the economy. If not dealt with quickly, inflation will bring the entire economy down. And I could say to you, okay, that's great. So we'll elect a Republican in 24. Okay. But you know what? Recessions are so harmful to ordinary working folks, lower middle class folks, people who work in services, people who are trying to climb the ladder of opportunity. Recessions are killers. I hate recessions. I spent my whole life arguing for growth and prosperity, not recessions. And that's why I really just it's not about partisan politics. It's about what it does to this country. My concern is they control him. And when he even says something that might be right, they come and undo it. They overrule him and he's the president. And he's shown no wherewithal to push back on that, at least the evidence that we've seen. So that's why I think even if this is good counsel that you're offering him, I don't know if he has the systems and authority in place in the White House to actually execute that change because these radicals are running the show and they're going to not give it up because they're getting what they want. You know, if you go back and look in the last year or so, you had a catastrophe in Afghanistan. You have a catastrophe at the southern border. You have a catastrophe regarding inflation. It is traceable, all of these things, to very bad policy decisions that come from the Oval Office and come from the White House. Not a single person has been fired or replaced. And I'm baffled by that. I don't care what administration you are. If stuff goes wrong, the people responsible for developing the policy must Exit. The only people leaving are the ones surrounding the vice president. She can't keep people for more than four months. <laughs> I know. But everyone know. else is right there in place is the point you've been making. Larry Kudlow, FBN. His show is Kudlow every weekday at 4 p.m. Eastern. I know you're off to Atlanta. Busy day for you tomorrow. Say hi to our audience down there at Extra 106.3. Great to see you face to face, Larry. We'll do Thanks. it again soon. Good. Thanks very much. It's the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour. More when we return. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Earlier on today's show, we welcome back Charles Cook of National Review. Really interesting, good discussion about the DeSantis versus Disney battle that is unfolding in the Sunshine State right now. Charles, I thought, was on the money, but still a worthwhile discussion about what is fair game, what goes too far when it comes to the exertion of political power in a battle with private industry. Here's part of that discussion. Should there be carve-outs only for Disney in this state in the first place? Is this a distortion of the market? Is this a good, sound policy anyway? Whereas, you know, other theme parks, other companies have to play by different rules. Uh, This is just leveling the playing field. I think that's fair. I think what concerns me, though, is the timing of this leveling of the playing field, which seems inarguably linked to a political disagreement. And this is like a punitive retaliatory action. Even if you can defend it just sort of in isolation on the merits, I'm not sure that you can 
extract the context or, you know, sap the context in which the changes have been made, which, again, doesn't really seem very subtle to me. That's part of the problem here, yes? Yeah. I mean, if this were a carve-out and if this had been rescinded as part of an overall and facially neutral review of carve-outs, then I would have no problem with it whatsoever. There is, for example, a carve-out within Florida law um, for Disney uh, within the tech bill that the Florida legislature passed uh, late last year. Um, I would repeal that in a heartbeat. That essentially gives treatment to Disney that is not received by, say, Netflix or HBO Go um, or Hulu. But first off, this was not a facially neutral review of carve-outs. Nobody was talking about this in Florida. Nobody was talking about it in the Florida legislature or in the governor's office or in the Republican Party. Um, Nobody had really thought much about this for 50 years. This came up because Disney spoke out against uh, the bill uh, that uh, Ron DeSantis signed, which I like and support. And um, I think it's gaslighting to, to pretend otherwise. Um, I would also push back against the characterization of Disney's arrangement here um, as a carve-out as well. And I do think this matters. Um, If it were the case that the only independent special district in Florida were Walt Disney World, then, uh, yes, that might be a little unseemly. But it's not. Um, There are 1,844 special districts in Florida, and 1,288 of them are independent special districts like Disney's. Disney's is a big one because Disney is big. Disney World is the size of San Francisco. It spans two counties, Orange County and Osceola County. It's an unusual place. But it's not just Disney that has this arrangement. Orlando International Airport has this arrangement. The Villages has this arrangement. Funnily enough, where Ron DeSantis was when he made this announcement. The Daytona International Speedway has this arrangement. Sometimes in politics... Uh, you have to solve difficult challenges. Disney World is a difficult challenge. Should locals in Orange and Osceola County pay taxes and incur debt uh, for Disney's benefit? The answer in 1967 was no. And so Disney was allowed to um, enjoy an independent special district, the Reedy Creek Improvement District, uh, that gave it certain um, freedoms uh, that the state didn't want to deal with, there being no infrastructure there at the time. This has worked for 50 years, and I think as a small-c conservative, uh, that should matter. Yeah, I I think that the the policy success here should matter, and then the what could happen next should also matter, which is, you know, all of a sudden, are these costs going to be shoved off onto taxpayers? And when you have taxpayers now footing the bill for stuff in Florida, is that in their best interest? Is that in the best interest of the state? For all of these reasons, you and I are— agreeing on this. This was a targeted strike. My full interview with Charles Cook of National Review, available online as part of the full podcast. The entire show, every day, no charge, on demand, available 24-7 around the clock. GuyBensonShow.com for that, or FoxNewsPodcasts.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. As I mentioned earlier, huge, huge podcast numbers last month. We are growing. We are very grateful to all of you. When we come back, the home stretch, there is a very popular cocktail. It's been around a long time, but it is having a resurgence. It's having a moment. People love it. They can't get enough, but it's apparently really bad for you. Which cocktail is it? We know someone will have some thoughts. We won't name her, but you can guess. That's next. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. 
Home stretch on this Thursday, Friday Eve on the Guy Benson Show from New York City. I'm on Kennedy tonight, sitting in for Kennedy one more time. Thanks for watching last night. Hope you will do so again this evening, 7 p.m. Eastern Fox Business Network. Our website here on the radio side, GuyBensonShow.com, for all of your program-related needs, including and or especially the podcast. Well, here's a headline from the New York Post. This insanely popular cocktail is ruining your sleep and heart health. So that's going to be a click from me. And the cocktail in question is a caffeinated concoction known as the espresso martini. And in this piece, the columnist writes, everybody loves them. They're over-the-counter crack for faux sophisticates. Yet has there ever been a worse moment to end your night mixing concentrated java and vodka plus coffee liqueur and simple syrup? And he gets into what experts say and medical professionals say are the impacts on your sleep cycle, your ability to sleep soundly for the amount of time that you need to, the pressure that this puts on your health, the pressure that this puts on your heart and therefore your health, the combination of booze and caffeine often at the end of the night. So I'm going to begin this conversation by just explaining I don't really drink these things. When I have a sip, I sort of like it, but I would never order it because I cannot stand vodka. I cannot drink it. If there is a drink with vodka in it, I can almost always taste the vodka, and it's just disgusting to me. So I'm like, it's an easy hard pass. It is all the rage. People are ordering them constantly, everywhere. Adam is into it. Our friends are into it. Our dear friend Kennedy loves mixing them up. She makes them all the time. It is very much a fad. There's one bartender quoted in the story who says, maybe every week or two you'd get a request. Now there's at least one a night at the restaurant that he works at. And I'm looking at some stairs through the glass here in the radio studio from at least two big fans of the espresso martini. I'm just not among them. Although, before I get to a dissenting view, when I mentioned this to Kennedy, because she was eager to whip me up an espresso martini. In fact, I'm pretty sure it was a couple years ago. She came down for a weekend, a night or two in D.C., and she arrived mid-party with all the ingredients for espresso martinis and just started making them, mixing them and pouring them for anyone who wanted one. Of course, she was a very popular figure at that party. But I told her recently, I don't drink vodka. I don't like it. And she said, oh, that's not a problem. I could make you one with tequila. And just that's a red flag right there. I actually like tequila. I like margaritas. I had one, in fact, at our team dinner the other night. I started with a marg, then gravitated to one beer, and then that was it. I like tequila. I like margs. I also know through experience, probably dating back to college, that tequila, especially bad tequila, 
ends poorly for me if I have too much of it. So I'll do it occasionally within reason, but to make that alcohol into the basis for an espresso martini, I don't know. It's just there was a voice inside me screaming, don't do it. So I didn't. It could be good. It could be bad. I just didn't even try. Now, producer Christine, her go-to is vodka. She calls it vodka. What did you have the other night at dinner? Was that a Cosmo? That was a Cosmo. Yeah. Not a surprise. Notice I only had one. Did you have a second drink of any sort? No, I'm calorie counting, remember? Oh, right. How's that going? How's Bobby? It's not great. How's Bobby weighing in on that, so to speak? It's not going great. And, you know, I'm doing this intermittent fasting, and then I just found this article today that says, stop doing it. It doesn't work. All the fad diets have their adherents and their critics. And like the skeptics, you'll drive yourself crazy. Oh, I am. I don't doubt that. Even if things are going well, you seek out reasons to get stressed out to drive yourself crazy. If you're not neurotic about something, you will find a reason. Like, you know, I'm feeling way too pleasant and copacetic today. Let me Google scary terms and whip myself into some sort of lather. I think, oh my God, I should talk to uh, my new therapist, Roy. I should talk to him about this tomorrow. Roy? Yeah, that's my new therapist. Are you calling my dog? <laughs> no. Did you fire your old therapist? Yeah, it wasn't working. Okay. We pause, had to break up. Pause, pause, pause. Make a note, Wyatt. We have a home stretch for tomorrow. Christine broke up with her therapist and has a new one. That is a whole separate conversation. We should bring a couch into the studio, Christine, and have you lie down on it. Then lower a microphone to you. And we could do a segment that way. When I once again resume my role as your unlicensed and absolutely uncompensated therapist. Yeah, you should be angry because I pay Roy. Yeah, no, I am. That That's the point of calling myself, pointing out how uncompensated I am for all this work that I do on your behalf. But let's just put a pin in that, Wyatt. Let's make sure that we revisit it at some point on the show tomorrow. But you want to make a point, I'm sure, about espresso martinis because we got way off track there. Well, I, I applaud you for only having one Cosmo at dinner. I did not notice, but that is off-brand. Oh, so, I knew. Yeah. I counted. But the espresso okay, martini. So, well, no, no, no. Let's just go back a little bit. Um, what does happen when Guy Benson has a little too much tequila? Are we talking about like when Cookie's on top of a bar dancing? Well, well, is that what are we talking? I don't dance on bars. You should. I might dance. I might dance finally. But don't you want to just like? Oh, I shouldn't say. It. Never mind. No, continue. The I thought, almost just said, don't you want to just get on top of something? Ah. <laughs> uh. Wyatt just walked out of the studio. He's like, I can't do this anymore. He's got, I feel like Wyatt, especially when he's up here in New York with Christine, he's got like on speed dial HR and his thumb is just hovering over the button to make that call finally. Well, and I'm also definitely a bad influence. He said he hasn't been reading the Wall Street Journal properly since he's been up here. Wow. It takes a lot for him to go cold turkey on the journal. Are you, like, shaking at all, Wyatt? Are you itching in your withdrawal? No, no, no. I just, you know, there's just, it's just the schedule, the commute in. I just, I don't have enough time sometimes. And this morning, I just didn't have time to read it, so. Do you not read on the train? I feel like that's the perfect time. You just, like, whip out your pipe. (laughs) 
sir, you're not allowed to smoke on the train. You have a little hole cut out of your mask just for your pipe, and then you read the journal in your sweater vest. You're on the 4.05 a.m. train for no reason. Your day starts at 10. This is what I'm envisioning. We are so far off the rails. Okay, back to martinis. Yes, please make your defense of the espresso martini. I mean, I just love it. I mean, there's no difference. That's it. Move on to the next person. They're amazing. Well said. The woman makes a point. The lady has made a point. She loves them. Dan, you're a big fan, but you said that you drink them out of different containers. So I like, I, I, the first one I ever got was in a martini glass, and they slosh. So I didn't like that. So you, they go all over the place, and it's very messy. So I asked for the first time if they could put it in a pint glass in ice. And it's a lot better. It stays cold, a little bit of Bailey's in it. What, you get them on the rocks? On the rocks. In a beer? In a pint glass, yeah. Like, you know, that like a pint glass. And it's delicious. You get a little bit more bang for your buck with it because it's a little bit bigger. Uh-huh. And they put ice in it, and it just stays cold and it's delicious. Do you support that, Christine? Not at all. Um, <laughs> I know you know this already, but I'm very sophisticated, and especially when it comes to my glassware for my vodka or any of the other. Yes. Your level of sophistication does, in fact, speak for itself. No, I, I, I wouldn't. You have to have a martini in a martini glass. And what is wrong with sloshing? <laughs> a lot, because then you lose some of it. I'm now reminded of Lucille Bluth, the character from Arrested Development, my favorite comedy character of all time, who would have her martinis, her vodka martinis, and would be drunk, usually in the middle of the day, and she'd be ranting about something, and then she would do angry air quotes. And when she would do the air quote, it would slosh and the thing would just spill everywhere. That's the visual that I'm getting here. By the way, since we're talking about ingesting alcohol out of unconventional containers, vessels, I was on Easter with Adam. We were invited over to a little party, actually trying to be huge, like 150 people, mostly outside, annual tradition, Molly and Mark Hemingway host a huge Easter for a lot of people from their church and their kids' school and their neighborhood. And we made the list this year, and it's very potluck. It was great. We brought a little thing, and everyone brings, and there's ham and all this stuff. And then they had kegs downstairs. It was really fun. I hung out with Molly Hemingway in her kitchen on Easter Sunday for probably an hour and a half just chatting about anything and everything, and we were drinking bubbly rosé together back and forth. I was drinking it out of a bourbon glass with the Declaration of Independence engraved on it. She was drinking her bubbly rosé out of like a chemistry beaker that actually has the markings of the quantity. And she said this is something that she learned at a party years ago. She thought it was sort of a cool thing. Plus... You can really literally keep track of the physical amount that you're consuming, and that's how she rolled. I thought that was sort of genius. No, Christine is— Why would you want to keep count of how much you drank? For purposes of responsibility. Oh. And probably calorie counting. Well, now, yes, I get it. I do. But um, anything bubbly belongs in, like, a flute of some sort. Generally, yes, but I don't know. Just— Picture Molly Hemingway in an apron transferring one honey-baked ham after another over to the table while nursing 
this pink bubbly alcohol in a chemistry beaker. That's kind of a an image that you don't always associate with Molly Hemingway. I think it's kind of cool. Yeah, you definitely don't associate that with her, but major cool points for Molly. Yeah, no, that's a different side of Molly Hemingway, and it's a delightful one. Not that, like, the normal badass one isn't. I'm just saying, like, you know, it's it's sort of some fun extra color that we've brought you here on the home stretch today. I was not expecting to go there in this conversation. In fact, we should probably clip this and send it to Molly and see if she's okay with it. And if she's not, like... I could be a little scared. I'll blame you. That's actually, you know what? It'll be Christine's fault. That's fine. And we're out of time. We've gone We've gone so long again. I don't even know what we just did. What was that segment? That'll be on bonus, Benson, for sure. Kennedy tonight, 7 p.m. Eastern, Fox Business Network. I'm guest hosting back here for the Friday edition from New York of the Guy Benson Show tomorrow. We will talk to you then. Have a great night. It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.